Well, good morning. Welcome to Sunday School. Looks like we're all set with our technical stuff today, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time to see what great things you have done in the past so that we'd be encouraged, emboldened, instructed, and convicted for the present. Help me to be able to explain this well. Help us to be able to pay attention and apply it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this is week two of our new series on church history, Church History 101, the early church. I hope that after last week's introductory lesson that you have come to appreciate the value of studying church history. Church history is really the history of God's family, which is our family if we have come to know Jesus Christ. It's the record of our family after the Bible ends. Of course, the Bible is that first record, and now in church history we have the ongoing record. Church history is also our portal of access to sanctifying fellowship with believers past. Believers who have a unique perspective, unaffected by the culture and biases of our own time. And church history is also a clear testimony of God's faithfulness and everything that he declares in his word. So that like a blinking arrow, church history directs us back to God, back to his word, so we may follow him in godliness and joy in the days of our lives. Now this morning we begin to study more systematically early church history. Now some of you may know, by the end of our period of study, by the 4th and 5th centuries AD, Christianity will have so permeated the Roman Empire that it will not only be officially tolerated, but actually recognized as the official religion of Rome, of the Roman Empire. How did that happen? How did Christianity spread so rapidly and thoroughly within the empire and beyond? How did God show himself mighty and faithful in this Christian expansion? And what lessons and encouragement can we gain for today? That's what we want to look at. Lesson two is gospel expansion. Before we get started, a quick word about sources that I'm using for this course. I said I would say something about that today. I put together this class from a lot of different sources, books, articles, DVDs, internet uh, sites, magazines, even some primary sources. So too many to list them all, but I want to give you the main sources that I'm using so that you can benefit from them as well, if you like. So first and foremost is the class I took in seminary, Historical Theology with Dr. Nathan Busenitz. You can actually enjoy his lecture series yourself if you just go to the Master Seminary YouTube page. So that's a huge source for this material. Another is the Capitol Hill Baptist Church History Core Seminar. There are a number, uh, yeah, some notes online. Then a number of books, and, and I, I list them in order of their, how in-depth they go. So first, Sketches from Church History by S.M. Houghton. It's kind of like an overview, not so in-depth, but gives you a good overview of church history, originally published in 1980. Then we have Through the Ages by Ernest Trice Thompson and Elton M. Egenberg, a little bit older source, 1965 published, from a Reformed Presbyterian perspective, even more in-depth than sketches. And then even more in-depth than that, The Story of Christianity by Justo Gonzalez. It's two volumes. I'm using the first one that, that contains information on the early church. Even more in-depth, well-researched, but does lean a little bit theologically liberal in certain biblical conclusions. So just know about that. And finally, my, my favorite book source, 2,000 Years of Christ's Power. This is actually five volumes. The first one is just on the early church, but this is by Nick Needham. So this came out in 2016, or rather the revised edition. It's from, written by a Reformed Baptist historian and also church minister. He's a minister in Scotland. So it's the most in-depth, and it includes several primary sources at the end of each chapter in the book. So, or not whole sources, but excerpts from those sources. So you not just get a description of church history, but you can actually see it yourself. I really appreciate that about that book. And of course, these would be great resources for you. If you're interested in church history, I recommend you check them out. Because they're so specialized, they're probably not things that we'll get for the book nook might be good for our lending library, but they certainly are worth checking out for you. One other source I want to mention, though, is the Christian Classics Ethereal Library. 
You can actually find this at ccel.org. What is this? Well, it's a digitized collection of various Christian writings from the past, even going back to the early church. You want to see what 2nd century, 3rd century, 1st century churchmen had to say? Well, it's there. It's there free for you to access at this website, Christian Classics Ethereal Library. So I use that, and you can use that too. So those are my main sources. One last disclaimer before we get into the material today, and that is I'm going to frequently refer to different centuries of time in this course. And you've got to remember the rules for talking about centuries, because it can be non-intuitive. If I say, for example, the second century, I'm talking about which set of years? Yeah, 100 to 199. It sounds like when you say second century, you mean the 200s, but that's not correct because the first century is actually, or not zero, one to 99. So you just have to kind of like move it one century over in your mind. I know it's confusing. It has to work that way. I have to do the gymnastics every time in my brain whenever I hear the word century used, like I'm going to try and use it. So don't feel bad if you ever get confused. I'll, I'll try and make it clear one way or another. All right, now we can begin today's topic. If there's one biblical truth that resounds clearly from the history of the infant days of the church, it is the truth that I mentioned last week from Matthew 16, 18. Christ will build his church on the rock of the gospel by the power of the gospel, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. God already powerfully illustrates this truth in the book of Acts, in the Bible, which is also history. But the history after the Bible, church history, relentlessly re-emphasizes that fact. You cannot stop God and his gospel. For as the scriptures say, Psalm 115.3, But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And because the Bible gives us such confidence in God's kingdom advance, we can also do what the Bible exhorts us to do, I think captured well for the early church and today in Philippians 1, 27 to 29, which you also see on the screen. Philippians 1, 27 to 29, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. In the days after Jesus' ascension, according to God's own mercy, he determined to open a wide door of salvation in Europe and elsewhere. And though the evil one and his world system determined to halt and reverse this gospel advance, they could not do it because God had determined it. In the same way, kind of giving you the application up front from today's lesson, even when we encounter opposition and persecution against our own lives of righteousness or in the proclamation of God's truth, we can be confident that God, his church, his gospel will never be defeated. Not ultimately. God can close doors to the gospel. God can let nations languish in spiritual rebellion and famine for a time. God can even provide for some of his faithful ones to be killed for the sake of Christ. But you cannot defeat God. You cannot ultimately chain his word. His truth will last, it will reach his elect, and they will be saved whenever God has determined that they will be. So the doom of those who try to defeat the gospel is already assured. And the victory of those who stand for the gospel, even us, is already guaranteed. And the early church is one of the theater of gospel op operations that shows this truth very clearly. And that's what I want to show you today. Let's talk about gospel expansion. And I want to consider this topic under three subheadings, three main topics related to gospel expansion. First, I want to talk about the extent of Christianity spread in the first three or four centuries. 
Second, I want to talk about the ways that God sovereignly prepared for the spread of his gospel. And then third, I want to identify the chief means of Christianity's spread in these early centuries. So let's first talk about the extent of Christianity's spread. Recall with me, and you can answer this out loud, from where does the message of Jesus first begin to spread? In Judea, and more specifically, what city? Jerusalem, yes. It starts in Israel, in Jerusalem. That's where the disciples of Jesus are at the beginning of the book of Acts. But when did the disciples in Jerusalem begin to share the gospel of Jesus extensively? Uh, Philip would come a little bit later, but there's an event that kind of kicks off the church and gospel proclamation. That's right, the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit, supernatural languages, or supernatural ability and languages was given on that day, and they begin to preach about Christ. Now, harder question, what year would this have taken place? It's a bit of a loaded question because that depends on how you see the timeline of Jesus' life, and there's some debate about that. But it would have begun in the same year of Christ's death and resurrection and ascension because Pentecost is only 50 days later from Passover, so it would have been in the same year. And what year would that be? I submit to you that it was A.D. 30, 30 in the first century. I won't get into all the details as to why I take that date. The real quick version of that is Jesus was likely born around 5 B.C., And Luke tells us that Jesus began his three-and-a-half-year ministry at about 30 years of age. So the timeline, as I understand it, that fits best with that, is that Jesus begins his ministry in 27, and the end of his ministry is in 30 with his death and resurrection. So that's why I'm taking that as the date for our class, AD 30. If you take a different date, not a salvific issue. Just want you to know where I'm coming from. So the church begins in Jerusalem in AD 30, Holy Spirit comes, supernaturally equips the disciples for bold witness and ministry. And where does the gospel go immediately after appearing in Jerusalem? Well, before Samaria, one step in between. So Jerusalem's in the southern part of Israel, right? What's the area around Jerusalem? You actually said it before, Glenda. Judea. It goes to the surrounding regions of Jerusalem. It goes into Judea, and then, as you said, Glenda, to Samaria. And then where does it go? I'm sorry, say that again. Yeah, eventually it makes it up north into Syria and Turkey, but really to all different parts of the world. And as I asked that question, perhaps you're remembering a certain line from the book of Acts. Not only does that book, that record from Luke, show, indeed, that was the order of gospel expansion, but it also gives record that Jesus said that would be the order of gospel expansion. In Acts 1.8, Jesus tells the disciples before he ascends that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. And that's what we begin to see in the book of Acts. By the end of the book of Acts, and you can see the diagram of Paul's journeys in the book of Acts, by the end of the book of Acts, which parts of Europe and the Middle East have established Christian congregations? What's one of them? You mentioned Turkey before. Asia Minor would certainly be one of those places. Where else? Macedonia, very good, the northern part of modern Greece today. Where else? Yes, even in Italy, in Rome. Then we could add some other places. So you see things kind of starting on the right lower quarter there with Israel-Palestine going up into Syria, big church in Antioch. And then we have area of Turkey, Asia Minor. And then going into Macedonia and also the lower part of it, which was called Achaia in that time. So Um, mainland Greece, Macedonia, over to Rome, but also the island of Crete, which is kind of in the middle of all that, in in that section there. These are all described in the book of Acts as places where um, the, 
disciples of Jesus ministered, brought the gospel, and so there were churches there even by the end of the book of Acts, which would probably be around A.D. 60. Within 30 years of the church, you have this gospel spread, and though some of these churches might have been small when they founded, they, they were already beginning to grow, and we can see the extent that it had moved. But this was only the beginning. There would be much more expansion of the gospel even before the end of the Bible, between what we read in Acts and the book of Revelation, which was probably written around AD 95, the gospel expands even more. I mean, after all, when, or let me ask this question, where did Paul say he wanted to take the gospel with the Romans' help when he wrote the letter to the Christians in Rome? Yeah, Bruce, that's right. He said, I want to go to Spain with your help. So wasn't like they thought that this was enough. Going to all the earth certainly required more than just where they'd already gone. Now, did Paul ever go to Spain? Historians debate whether he really did or not. There's not a lot of evidence one way or another. There is a suggestion from what we see in the totality of Scripture that Paul had a time of unrecorded ministry between his first imprisonment and his second imprisonment. So it is quite possible that he did go to Spain. But whether he did or not, Somebody went to Spain because Christianity eventually spreads to all parts of the Roman Empire and even beyond. Like I was saying, the disciples did not understand Jesus' command to go out into all the world to mean only a certain section of the Roman Empire or even just the Roman Empire. No, we see that both in the Bible and in the records that we have post-Bible, Christians took their message everywhere. And... I'm going to show you a slide. This doesn't contain everywhere they went, but you can kind of see the, the borders of where they went. I'll explain this a little bit more in just a second. But from that beginning place in Israel, in Jerusalem, Christians ended up taking the message of Jesus east. They went into the Middle East, into the Tigris and Euphrates Valley, Mesopotamia, which would be modern Iraq and Iran. They took it into Arabia. They took it along the shores of the Black Sea, so that sea above Turkey. They took it into Armenia, which, by the way, was actually the first political entity in history to embrace Christianity as its state religion. Actually, even before Rome, Armenia declared itself a Christian state. Christians took the message into Central Asia, modern Afghanistan and Pakistan. They took it into India. They even took it into Mongolia and China. You say, what are you talking about? How do we know that? Well, that's what that picture on the right is. That is the Xi'an Steel, a stone document discovered in China in the 1600s, which details the history of healthy Christian communities from the early 7th century into the 9th centuries. So there were Christians in China at that time. And if there were whole communities of Christians in the 6th to the, ninth, or to the 7th and the 9th centuries, that means Christians must have come with the message before that. So maybe even as early as the 4th century, the 300s. So Christians took the message east. And Christians also took the message west into Africa. They went into Egypt and North Africa. They also went south into Ethiopia. So not pictured on that map there on the left, but if you just keep going south from Egypt, you run into Ethiopia, which also became a Christian, an overtly Christian nation in the 4th century. And there's still a traditional apostolic Christian church in Ethiopia today. They took it into Ethiopia. They took it into Nubia, which is modern Sudan. So kind of keep going south from Ethiopia. And they likely went even further south into Africa, though we don't have any specific records that say so. So they took the message east. They took it south. And they also took it, or southwest. And they also took it west, of course, into the Roman Empire. The message went to Spain, whether Paul or somebody else into Gaul, which was what the Romans called modern France. It was called Gaul at that time. Took it into the British Isles and even into the border regions and even beyond the borders into the area north where the Germanic tribes were. So Christians truly went everywhere with the message of Christ. Not immediately in the first century, but as the centuries went on, Christians went further and further afield. Early church history 
it often focuses on the Roman Empire, and there's reason for that. It's the place where we actually have good records, and of course we have a special interest in it because it's our cultural heritage, and in many ways the main side of our Christian heritage. But let's not forget that Christianity is not a European religion. It is an international religion, and it was that way from its beginning, as we can even see in how the way the message spread in the early church. It is a faith that is all tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations who belong to Jesus Christ. We see that actually even in the early church. Now what specifically about the apostles? Where did the apostles and other main New Testament leaders end up in this gospel expansion? I was going to put a list on here, but it would have been too small for you to read, so I'll just say it to you, though I have to give you a few caveats. It's kind of hard to say where the apostles ended up. Other than a few cases, we do have information from church tradition as to where they ended up, where they ministered, and where they ended, but it's not entirely reliable. So as I share this with you, take it with a grain of salt. There's reasons that people might have said the apostles came to a certain place when they didn't, or said certain things happened to them when that's an exaggeration. Some traditions are more reliable than others, and I'll tell you what they are in just a second. But here's a brief list as to some traditions as to where New Testament believers, specifically the apostles and a few others, ended up in the gospel expansion. Peter, imprisoned under Nero and crucified upside down in Rome. James, the brother of John, beheaded by Herod in Judea. That's actually in the book of Acts, Acts 12.2. John the Apostle, exiled to Patmos for a time, little island, and then died of natural causes in Ephesus. Andrew, preached in Ethiopia, crucified. Philip, ministered in Greece, crucified and stoned. Bartholomew, beaten, crucified, and beheaded in Armenia. Matthew, preached in Egypt and Ethiopia, run through by a spear. Thomas preached as far as India, where he was killed by a dart or an arrow. Sorry. James, son of Alphaeus, ministered in Syria, crucified. Thaddeus, not a lot of information about him, ministered in Mesopotamia, likely martyred. Simon the Zealot preached through Africa, throughout Africa, crucified there. James, the brother of Jesus, ordered stoned by the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. Mark, founded the church in Egypt, burned alive in Alexandria. And of course, Paul <laughs> probably did travel to Spain, imprisoned under Nero, and beheaded in Rome. Now, of that list, I said, you've got to take it with a grain of salt. I mean, that's just church tradition. But the traditions for Thomas, Peter, Paul, John, and Mark are particularly strong. They probably did indeed go to those areas and die there. And you'll notice from that list I just gave you, <laughs> all of these men, except John, they were martyred. They were martyred in the places that they preached and ministered. And we'll talk more about persecution that Christians experienced in the early centuries, but I, I want to mention this to you because it is a strong point of apologetics for Christianity. The apostles, all of them except John, were martyred. And even John was persecuted. And none of these apostles cracked and said, I'm just kidding, we made up this thing about Jesus and your need to repent, don't kill me. None of them said that. None of them did that. These men believed wholeheartedly in the gospel that they proclaimed, and they were willing to die for it. This was Christ shining through weak vessels in a powerful way. These men were happy to die for the Lord if it meant that they could be faithful to him, experience the goodness of him, and put him on display in the world. There's definitely an example to emulate there. But even in the first few centuries, I get the main point, Christians were taking the good news of salvation in Jesus far 
and wide. Wait a second. I don't know if you can see it too well on the map there, but the different colors, they are an estimate based on the records we have of when in the Roman Empire Christianity arrived in certain areas. So, yeah, the darkest pink is where it starts and the lighter regions is where it gets to later. But not only did the message about Jesus expand geographically, it also expanded within regions. A greater and greater percentage of the Roman population, I'm going to focus on Rome here again because that's where we have the best records and closest connection. A greater percentage of the people within different areas, especially in Rome, were turning to the Lord. According to one estimate, oh, actually, let me say this first. How many people are we told in Acts chapter 1 are gathered in Jerusalem as the church? 120. Not a huge amount, but that seems to constitute the entire church of Christ. So in Acts first chapter, we have 120 believers. By AD 325, the Council of Nicaea, one estimate provides that there were probably about 10 million Christians in the Roman Empire which would have been about 10 to 15% of the population. That is a huge increase. (laughs) 120 to 10 million in just three centuries, a huge portion of the population. How did that happen? Well, we're going to answer that more. Let me ask you this, though. From which classes did converts to Christianity come? Was it lower? Was it middle? Was it upper? It was indeed majority low, but it actually was all classes. And this we can even see already starting in the book of Acts. While many in the lower classes were the first to be attracted to Christianity, and because there are more people in that category, um, it makes sense that they make up more of those who do convert. We read even in Acts that there were people from all segments of life who came to believe, both Jew and Gentile. There were Christian slaves and soldiers, senators and philosophers, merchants and lawyers, ex-priests and ex-prostitutes, mothers and fathers, children and eunuchs, young and old, Jews, Romans, and barbarians, those who would come from outside of Rome. In fact, oh, let me say this. I have some cool quotes to share with you, but let me say this first. Christianity was particularly strong in cities, which maybe surprises us. We think of cities as being like bastions of wickedness. And there is a lot of celebrated sin in cities in America. But actually, cities were the strongholds of Christianity. That's where Christianity made its initial spread, and that's where most uh, Christians lived. As the centuries went on, though it did include Jews and Gentiles, Christianity became increasingly Gentile. There were multiple reasons why Jews... Um, many Jews did not convert to Christianity, and Christianity became less Jewish. And one of those reasons is the Roman crackdown on Jews because of Jewish revolts. Um, There were some violent revolts led by Jews in Israel and other places against Rome. Rome really took a hard line against the Jews, and Christians had multiple reasons to distance themselves from Judaism, not only because they weren't participating in the revolt or the crackdown, but they also saw... There's a big theological difference between Christians and Jews. So Christianity became increasingly Gentile. But as I say, or as I was about to say, we can see these facts about the increasing prevalence of Christianity in Roman society, even from the words of people at that time. Listen to a few quotations. This first one is from Pliny the Younger, who was a governor in Bithynia, which would be northwest Turkey. He writes with perplexed frustration to Emperor Trajan about Christians in AD 112. And here's part of what he says. This is Pliny. Quote, many of every age, every rank, and even of both sexes are brought into danger and will be in the future. The contagion of that superstition, i.e. Christianity, has penetrated not only the cities, but also the villages and country places. Unquote. So this is a non-Christian, a Roman, saying these Christians are multiplying. Someone else, this is from a philosopher turned Christian, who's known today as Justin Martyr. He remarked sometime around AD 150 
quote, There is not a single race of men, whether among barbarians or Greeks, or by whatever name they may be called, of those who live in wagons or are called nomads or of herdsmen living in tents, among whom prayers and thanksgivings are not offered through the name of the crucified Jesus to the Father and Maker of all things, unquote. He was making that claim. He says, wherever you find people, you find people within their groups who are praying to the Father through Jesus. And then one other quotation. This is from a second century, I'm sorry, third century polemical father, Tertullian. Actually, I think he, he kind of went from the previous century into this one. But he writes around the year 200, quote, We are but of yesterday, and we have filled every place among you. He's addressing Gentiles. Cities, islands, fortresses, towns, marketplaces, the very camps, tribes, companies, palace, senate, and forum. We have left you only the temples. Polytheistic temples. So, unquote. This is, from these quotations and from that data, this is Christ building his church. This is Christ fulfilling his promise to build his church in an obvious and powerful way in a field that was well prepared and ripe for harvest. So we see the extent of Christianity spread in the early centuries. Throughout the Roman Empire, even beyond the Roman Empire, and at all levels of the Roman Empire, the saving gospel was multiplying. But now we want to come back to that question. How did this happen? How did this amazing harvest of souls happen? Well, there was some preparation involved. Let's look at next the ways that God sovereignly prepared for the spread of the gospel. The most basic answer to how this gospel expansion happened is that God did it. God determined it. A sovereign God brought it to pass. He is powerful. He is kind. He is faithful. He said he would do it, and he did it. God can do the impossible. Yet what means did God use? Was he pleased to use? Even in your sharing your own salvation testimony with people, you might acknowledge on the one hand, Oh, God saved me. How did I come to salvation? It was all God. He brought me. He opened my eyes. And that is a very theologically correct answer. And yet it is also correct for you to say, Oh, but God did these specific things in my life to draw me to him. I had this, um, this tragedy that took place. Or I met this person. Or I was really interested in this, and it led me to start reading the Bible or something like that. So there were tangible means that brought you to God. It's the same thing for the early centuries of the church. There are at least two main ways that I'll mention to you in which God prepared a Roman harvest. One way is Roman civilization itself. Another way is disillusionment, a wave of disillusionment with traditional Roman philosophy and religion. Let's talk about Roman civilization. Roman civilization itself facilitated the spread of the Christian gospel. As you know, Rome was a very powerful empire, and you saw the map before. It controlled basically all the Mediterranean. And to the people it conquered, sorry, still a little sniffly, Rome brought the so-called Pax Romana. What does that mean? Roman peace, yeah, just Latin for Roman peace. This Pax Romana, it lasted for centuries. I mean, the early centuries of gospel expansion, much of that was the Pax Romana. There was little to no international warfare at this time, instead a large degree of peace and prosperity in the borders of the Roman Empire. Now, it wasn't completely peaceful. There were border skirmishes. There were some revolts. There were some bloody wars of succession from time to time. But the empire, generally speaking, was remarkably unified and peaceful. Many of the peoples who had been conquered and brought into Rome's empire, they actually appreciated what being Roman brought them. And so they contributed to continued order and peace and stability. What did all this mean for the people of the empire? Well, it meant that they could trade and travel throughout the empire, the territory of the empire, while being relatively unhindered. And this, of course, included Christians who were going about with the message of salvation. Roman peace and stability enabled that. Furthermore, there were certain physical benefits that Rome helped inaugurate that made travel easier. Think about today. Let's say you want to travel across America by car. What makes you so confident that you can do that? Yeah, roads, and not just roads, but 
pretty good roads. I know we sometimes complain about the potholes or the road construction in certain areas, but if you go to other countries, you'll certainly appreciate how good American roads are. We have good roads, but not just that. What else makes you confident that you can travel from one side of the country to another with a car? Yeah, there's an infrastructure and resources along the way so that you can find a hotel or you can get food or you can get drink or whatever it is. What else? What stops, or somebody was saying something? Yeah, so you actually have the vehicle or the technology or the prosperity to afford that vehicle and actually travel across the country. But let me ask you this, what stops you from, or what stops a person from just taking your car? You're traveling, you stop, they just take your car and drive away with it. You don't anticipate that happening. Why not? Because we have laws, because we have police, because we have a court system, which is by no means perfect, but does some um, enforcement of justice, we have these things. So that enables us to travel by car and other means with a relative degree of confidence. Well, the same thing was true of the Roman Empire. They didn't have quite the same technology that we do, but they did have excellent roads and infrastructure, aqueducts, various things along the way as people traveled. They also had a strong and plentiful military, which had not only cleared the Mediterranean Sea of most pirates, but it also was firmly there to keep order. And they also had a decent court system, in many ways different from ours today, but they did have a court system where people could come and address criminal and civil cases. So. These things allowed the empire's inhabitants to travel more quickly and without fear. And this proved to be a great benefit to Christians. It's interesting, when you think about Paul's travels, what was the thing that seemed to hinder him the most when it came to travel? Well, certainly there was the Jewish persecution, so it didn't even come from the Romans at that time. But um, a lot of people didn't travel by... If you wanted to go really long distance in the Roman Empire, you didn't travel by road, you traveled by sea. But what was the big hindrance to sea travel? Weather. So it wasn't actually pirates, it wasn't a lack of vessels, it was just weather. And, and you know, Paul was even shipwrecked one time because of that. So there was that, but in terms of what the empire itself could provide, there was a lot to encourage and to protect the travel of people. But even if you can travel quickly from one side of the country or one side of the empire to another, that doesn't mean you can easily, that doesn't by itself mean you can easily share the gospel. Because I can travel to, all right, America's a little bit different, but let's say I go to another place in the world. Let's say I travel to Papua New Guinea and I want to share the gospel with people. I can get there pretty easily today, but there's a big barrier to my declaring the gospel. And what is that? language. I just don't know their language. I'm going to have to learn their language or hope that they know my language if I'm ever going to talk to them about the gospel. Language is a huge barrier. Except, in the Roman Empire, it wasn't. There was a common language throughout most of the Roman Empire, basically two main languages, but one particularly so. What was the language that most people in the Roman Empire spoke? It was Greek. It was Latin, more in the West, but even in the West, there are a lot of people who knew Greek, and certainly in the Middle and the East, East from your perspective, it was Greek. Now, and if you might be history buffs, why did so many people know Greek? Yes, I heard it. Alexander the Great. It comes back to Alexander the Great. Well, not just him, but he was a huge reason why. The previous world empire dominant empire before the Romans were the Greeks under Alexander and his successors. And Alexander brought Greek culture and language to the areas that he conquered. And he attempted to make those people that he conquered culturally Greek, as he was. He wanted to Hellenize them, is the term. And that term comes from Helene, meaning Greek, or Hellas, meaning Greece. This, by the way, is what the Bible is talking about when it refers to Hellenistic Jews. These were Jews who had taken on or were open to Greek culture. And many people, not just Jews, ended up adopting Greek culture to some degree. The Romans really admired Greek culture with its art, its philosophy, its literature. In fact, there's one Greek historian who says 
after the Romans conquered Greece, Greece conquered Rome, that is, culturally speaking. And so many Romans learned Greek, and many uh, of those in the areas that were conquered by Rome learned Greek. They were Hellenized. Hellenization, by the way, is why the New Testament is written in the language that it is. You might expect, hey, this is a book written about Jesus from Israel. Why is it not in Hebrew? Why is it not in Aramaic? Or if it's in the Roman Empire, why wasn't it written in Latin? It's not. It's written in Greek. It's written in Koine Greek, the common version of Greek, which even non-Greek speakers, many non-Greek speakers would know and use to converse. Christians were able to take advantage of this common language in the Roman Empire to rapidly spread the message of Christ. I mean, could you, to a very small extent, we see this today a little bit with English, but to go to another country, which is totally different culture and language-wise, and just be able to show up and speak the same language, that, that would be a huge advantage to missionaries today. Most of the time, they can't do that. But they could do that in the Roman Empire. You could go from, like Paul wanted to, you could go from... Uh, Syria or Turkey to Spain and be like, I'll just speak the language that I already know. And you'll find a ton of people who also speak that language. That was a huge advantage to Christians. How did that happen? Well, God providentially arranged it. So Roman civilization itself aided the harvest of souls in the Roman Empire with its Pax Romana, its law and infrastructure, and its common language. But there was something else. Second, Many of the Roman pagans were prepared to hear the gospel due to general disillusionment with Roman religion and Greco-Roman philosophy. So the Platonism and Stoicism of the early centuries BC, these were two branches of philosophy that had been very popular, they were no longer seeming to be satisfying for many Romans. These philosophies seemed too abstract, too emotionless, too unconcerned with individual people. People craved something that was more real, something that spoke to their deep emotional and spiritual hungers. And they couldn't find this in Roman polytheism. People, many Romans, continued to offer nominal devotion to the distant, flawed, and indifferent gods of the Roman state. But people wanted something more. And even before the message of Christ arrived, many Gentiles were already looking to Eastern mystery religions for answers. These would be cults of Isis or Serapis from Egypt, Cybele from Asia Minor, or Mithras from Persia. These mystery religions, so named because of the secret initiation rituals that had to, you had to go through if you want to be part of it, in some ways they... I don't know if parallel is the right term, but they presented some of the same ideas that would later come in Christianity. These cult religions, they didn't offer selfish gods disinterested in human problems or suffering, but something like savior gods who related to individuals and in some cases could even die and rise again. The mystery religions also presented sacramental acts that adherents claimed could cleanse individual worshipers of sin deliver from death, and grant eternal life. In Roman polytheism and in in philosophies, there was no promise of eternal life, but people were looking for that, and these mystery religions seemed to offer that. Now, of course, there's other huge differences between these mystery religions and the truth of Christianity. These were not talking about the true God at all, but made-up gods that may have been based off of a historical person who died, and people said, rose again and became a god. So, there's some pretty big differences, but these, this interest in mystery religions and some of the things that these mystery religions taught and offered, they show us not only what many people were looking for, hungering for at that time, but they also, in a way, stoked interest in the very types of truth that the true gospel would actually offer. Say, oh, you know, I heard about this mystery religion that talks about a personal God who offers salvation, even eternal life. Well, People are already thinking along those lines, and then an apostle or someone else arrives and they say, let me tell you actually about the creator God who is these things in uh, a greater way, in an actually true way. Let me tell you about the real, merciful, saving God who, if you will repent and believe, will give himself an eternal life to you. When I think about our own culture, 
or maybe when you think about it, it can be really discouraging to think about where it is today. It's so secular, it's so atheistic, it's so ridiculous, and it's belligerent championing of tolerance. But historically speaking, societies often only embrace an idea for a time before they really want something different. And this has even been true in the United States. So who knows? As our culture increasingly becomes morally and intellectually bankrupt <laughs> with things like its modernism and postmodernism, it's like sooner or later we're going to realize there's, there's no basis for morality or even happiness in our current cultural thinking. As our culture increasingly moves in that direction, maybe, who knows, God might turn the hearts of our people to long for something different, to long for truth, to long for righteousness, to long for salvation. And we do see this on the individual level, right? Many of you can give testimony, like, I was living this way, I was thinking this way, but I just, it was so empty. I wanted something more. I wanted truth. I wanted life. And this person seemed to have it. And he told me about Jesus. We see that on an individual level. Let us pray to the Lord of the harvest that we might see that on a national level. Because he can do it. He did it in the Roman Empire. He brought in this wave of disillusionment. May he do that here in the United States and other places. So not only did the Roman civilization aid the spread of Christianity, but so did this wave of disillusionment with religions and philosophies. It readied the hearts of many people for the message of Jesus. But even if a harvest is prepared, the harvest must actually be gathered in, right? So how did God do it? come to our last topic for the day, the chief means of Christianity spread. Perhaps this topic raises a special interest, this last subtopic, because you say, well, whatever they did, it seemed to work really well. Why don't we do the same thing today? Well, we got to check that a little bit, because remember, God did prepare certain things. He sovereignly arranged for this harvest to be there, and yet it is still important for us to find out what was the means. What, what, what was this seemingly so effective means of spreading the gospel? Well, can you guess what it was? Well, persecution played a huge part in it, and we'll talk about that. But even more directly, the chief means of Christianity spread in the early centuries was simply personal Christian witness. It was simply Christians telling others in personal conversations about Christ from the scriptures and then living lives of joy and faithfulness to back up what they said. When we think about the early church, we might get the wrong idea about how Christians spread the message if we just focus on a few narrow events presented to us in the book of Acts. We might look at Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost or the message that he and John preached after they healed a lame man and think that this is the paradigm for Christian evangelism. What we've got to do is gather a whole bunch of people together, speak to these multitudes about Jesus, and watch as thousands repent and believe. Now, God was pleased to use that in some instances. And there were miraculous signs that went with that as well. But there are other times, even in the book of Acts, where a large gathering heard the message about Jesus and few, if any, repented or believed. Can you think of any of those times? Mars Hill. Or when Paul speaks before the Jews after they had arrested him in the temple. And I had one other example. I forgot, forgot it. But this... In these examples, very few people believed. So it's not as if that's always what happens, or that's, that's the only way that it can happen. Oh, Stephen's address before the Sanhedrin, that was the other one. And I think in many ways we see that this is true today. It's not usually the mass convention center address that brings about a lot of conversions, at least true conversions. Rather, it is, as I think... We could testify, if we were to do a survey here at this church, certainly it was John MacArthur's finding when he asked his church about how the different people in it came to faith. He kind of he did this special thing one Sunday morning, apparently, where he asked the different people in his church to stand up when he mentioned a specific method of evangelism. He said, were you, or, if you were saved in a Billy Graham crusade, why don't you stand up? Or if you saved by something you saw on television, why don't you stand up? And he went through all these different lists. And only a few people would stand up for those different methods. I mean, some people did, but it wasn't a huge amount. But then when he got to the last one that he asked, he said, how many of you were saved through a personal witness of a friend, family member, or coworker?" And then, like, the whole church stood up. 
It does seem to be the way that God is pleased to save people. It's through these one-on-one, life-on-life interactions where people just share the gospel with people they know, with people whose lives back up what they say. Listen to a quotation along these lines from one of the history books. I know you probably can't read that, or it is kind of small. So just listen to me as I, as I speak it. This is from Thompson and Egenberg as they talk about Christianity spread in their book through the ages. Quote, Christianity grew naturally, it has been said, from within. Ordinary Christians witnessed to those with whom they came into contact. Celsus, one of Christianity's leading critics, scoffingly remarked that fullers and workers and wool, fullers and workers in wool and leather, rustic and ignorant persons were the most zealous propagators of Christianity and brought it first to women and children. Women and slaves introduced it into the home circle. Careful investigation reveals that Christianity in its growth followed the trade routes of the empire, and we recognize that merchants carried it with their goods. We find it in the army barracks and know that soldiers carried it from one post to another. Justin, this is the same Justin we mentioned before, the first philosopher to believe had sought truth in many areas and in a number of philosophic schools. He was converted, he tells us, by a venerable old man whom he met walking on the shores of the sea. He, that's Justin, taught now the new philosophy of Christ. Every Christian laborer, said Tertullian, both find out God and manifest him. As another has said, it was a case of one loving heart setting another on fire. It's so simple, right? You don't need to be a preacher, teacher, or scholar. You just have to come to know Christ yourself and then take him with you. Talk about him wherever you go with whomever will listen. Thompson and Egenberg go on to say something else, emphasizing that a Christ-like lifestyle backed up the words of these personal gospel interactions. Another quotation. It was not only the words that they spoke, but also the witness of their lives. Behold how these Christians love one another, the pagans are reported to have said. The Jews do not allow any of their own people to become beggars, and the Christians support not only their own, but also our poor. Julian, the heathen emperor, so he comes in the early 300s, I think. He wrote after the death of Constantine, seeking in vain to turn, oh no, later 300s, seeking in vain to turn the clock backward and breathe new vitality into a dying paganism. It is matters like this, he added, which have contributed most to the spread of Christianity. Mercy to strangers, care for burying the dead, and the obvious honorableness of their conduct. Yes. Yeah, care for burying the dead. Which is another topic we could talk about another time. Uh, interesting cultural uh, issue. So you hear these quotations. It was Christ's goodness and glory displayed in the lives of simple Christians that won the hearts of God's ready elect throughout the Roman Empire. Christ was pleased to build his church by displaying himself through happy, obedient Christians to people who are walking in darkness. They saw the light of Christ in these weak vessels. And that should encourage us because we're weak too. But we can and must do the same as these early Christians. After all, the command to go out into all the earth, go to the ends of the earth and make disciples, it's unfinished. We have a part to fulfill as well. God has elect ones among those that we know, among our friends, family, and co-workers. He's put them in our lives for a specific purpose. He's preparing them, some of them, to receive the witness of Christ's glory through us. Of course, not everyone we meet will be elect, and God has a purpose in our sharing the gospel even to those that he has not called unto salvation. But God does also have his sheep that he will gather in. So the question for us to ask ourselves is, are we ready to fulfill our commission? Are you ready and willing to obey God in this area to be the trumpet that awakes the dead to new life or to be like the farmer who plants the seed that someone else waters and reaps? Now, make no mistake, we do need God, as we are already seeing from beginning in the lesson. We need God to prepare and to bring the growth. We cannot conjure revival, manipulate people, argue people into the kingdom of God by our own strength. We need God to do the work. 
We must pray for the lost with fervency. We must receive instruction and strength ourselves from God's word, and we must encourage one another as a church. In doing all this, fundamentally we must believe what the early Christians believed in the Bible, that Christ is great, that he is true life and joy, that no one will stop his gospel advance. He's not asking for permission to save anyone's rebellious heart. Whatever the Lord has determined to do, he will accomplish, and he's determined to save people through us. So let's obey that command. Go and make disciples. Remember, though, and this goes back to something that Rich mentioned, one of the ways that you will dispense the fragrant aroma of Christ is how you demonstrate how much of a treasure Jesus is while you are suffering, as you are going through trial and persecution. As my dad used to say, people are always watching you. They may not tell you, but when you say that you're a Christian, they watch you to see how you will react in different situations. Do you laugh at the dirty joke along with everyone else? How do you respond when you're blamed for a problem that you didn't cause? They're looking for a reason to dismiss your faith, to console themselves, to silence any conviction you might otherwise bring when they see you compromise in your life and they say, look, he's actually no different from me. He's a hypocrite. I don't have to worry about his message. People are always watching. But when believers stand in righteousness and joy in response to hardship or persecution, unbelievers don't know what to do with that. It is a powerful testimony to the treasure of God's Spirit within his people. And this is what we see in the early church. A faithful witness of early Christians amid false accusation, suffering, and even death, it punctuated their gospel preaching in a powerful way, and it drew many to Christ. Just one quick example. You know, we mentioned Justin Martyr earlier, and Thompson Eichenberg noted how he was converted after speaking to a man by the seashore. Well, somebody had planted the seed before. Who was that? A Christian martyr. He watched some of these people being killed for the sake of Christ, and he, he marveled. And he wondered. He who had not found any satisfying answers in philosophy, he said, what do these people have? And then God brought him to somebody else who could explain the gospel to him. It was the testimony amid suffering that actually brought many people to Christ. What was the persecution that early Christians endured? What can we learn from it? That's what we'll talk about next time. Sum up what we've seen today. In the incredible expansion of Christianity in the first few centuries, expansion that eventually resulted in the official adoption of Christianity as the religion of the empire, God brought about a massive harvest by sovereignly preparing the way, by raising up a Roman civilization that made rapid travel and gospel proclamation, or, yeah, that made rapid travel and gospel proclamation possible, and also by stirring up a hunger for people for things spiritual, a hunger that could not be satisfied by traditional Roman religion and philosophy. After that preparation, God sent in eager laborers ready to share one-on-one -on -one with people as they just interacted throughout their days, people who would gladly and in a holy, in a, with a life backed up in holiness talk about the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, if you have questions about what you heard today, you can come talk with me afterwards. But that's it for time. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the Lord of the harvest because just as you did this great work in the past, we know you can do a great work now. We don't want to presume on you, trying to conjure revival, manipulate some sort of conversion. We've seen in other parts of church history what terrible things that led to. But God, we do beseech you. Prepare the hearts of the people we know and the people of this country to repent and believe. Put such a hunger in them and put a zeal and holiness in us so that we will declare that word with courage 
And Lord, we will back it up with lives that are obedient and joyful even amid suffering. Lord, help us not to be afraid. If you were with us, then we can overwhelmingly conquer. And we know that you are with us. Be with us the rest of this day, Lord, as we continue to learn and offer worship to you. In Jesus' name, amen.